Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show. We're going to be talking about midterm elections. What is going on in the midterms? How did it end up shaking out? We have a lot of analysis on that. I'm also going to be discussing today the collapse of FTX, one of the largest crypto operations on earth, uh, a combination of a clearinghouse, a custodian, uh, an exchange, and then this little hedge fund off to the side that seems to have caused a lot of trouble. We're going to get into all of that. And then we've got some new COVID data out concerning myocarditis, the big claim that uh, you're likely to get myocarditis from getting COVID itself, not from the vaccine. Well, it looks like that was a big lie, a total and complete lie. So we're going to talk about all of this now. Uh, and what I hope to do is elucidate these topics as well as I've prepared to elucidate them. Uh, I will tell you, I have spent more time collecting data, preparing this show than I have ever spent on an episode of this show or on uh, Man Up with Jacob Wool back when it was on Censored.TV for two plus years. So a lot of data to take in. I'm glad, I am just so glad that I had a day uh, in between the midterms, uh, the, the, the election night, and today to do this show, really a day and a half to take this all in and, and digest some of the takeaways. Because the first thing is, you can't really react to things with any sort of useful reaction just after they happen because you don't have enough data and you don't have enough time to ponder the data and consider what it might mean. That's why I got asked to do a number of uh, live streams that were happening on election night uh, as a guest, you know, come on and react to the election and all of this. I said no, because I just didn't think there was anything I could add that would be up to my standard in terms of analytical value on election night. Now, if it's a presidential election, that's a different story. I can react to the presidential election as the results come in. I did that in the 2020 election on censored.tv live uh, as soon as the midnight, uh, as soon as the clock hit midnight, because of course I was uh, banned by the court in Michigan from making any political remarks until midnight on election night. Uh, so I did that. So anyway, we've got a lot to discuss here. If you're looking for an apoplectic response, if you're looking for a very simple response, and you're seeing a lot of these on Twitter, you know, people saying, oh, it's all Trump's fault. Trump is done. He picked bad candidates. No more Donald Trump. He is done. You know, if you want a, a New York Post headline kind of analysis of this, you're not going to get it here. We have a lot of detail to go into. As with any complex system, it requires a multifactorial analysis. When you're talking about a midterm election, and it's not really an election, it's midterm elections. You have a governor's race in Ohio, and you have a congressional race in Colorado. How similar are those two things? Well, in some sense, they're kind of similar. People do tend to vote one team up and down the ticket, one party up and down the ticket, but in many ways, they're quite different. And so we're going to go into all of this here. And of course, I have to begin by talking about what was perhaps the most memorable moment of the night. 
And uh, this person says here, how can a court ban you from expressing your free speech? Yeah, I don't know. And and how can they demand $100,000 bail down from a million dollars bail? In that case, it's a good question. That was what happened, though. And they said, if I made any mass political communications, that I would be thrown in jail until after the election. That's what was that's what the judge's order was at the request of the attorney general in Michigan, Dana Nessel, who was reelected handily, it looks like on Tuesday. But of course, we begin the night talking about this. uh, I'm blowing this up big for those of you watching uh, live here. We begin talking about this uh, situation with uh, Fetterman. I mean, this this is just uh, a, a disgrace to the country, obviously. I had sort of a a rant a couple episodes back where I said that this Pennsylvania Senate election would be the real tell. It would be really what is the harbinger uh, for whether, not whether it's, it's, it's going to come out the same way in other states or not. I mean, that's what people generally look for is a canary in the coal mine or a, uh, a harbinger of things to come or, or whatever you call it, a bellwether election. And I didn't think it was a bellwether in terms of the overall result of the election, but I thought that it was a bellwether in terms of if there is any reason uh, to engage in the kind of psychotic levels of work that are involved to try to be an operative in any of these sorts of elections. And and one thing that Ali Alexander wrote up in a piece that I remember sharing on Telegram, it was in the, he wrote it up in the, oh Jesus, what is the name of that piece? Not the, is it the Inquirer? No, it's, um, anyway, it's, it's, it's the old British piece and they have the American version, the old British uh, site, they have the American version. Ali Alexander wrote this up and he said that we would have a red victory but not a red wave, and that opportunities have been squandered. But one of the things that he pointed to was that many of the GOP's best political operatives, of which I, I don't put myself on that list, let's just take me out of it, and I'm a lobbyist really is my day job, and so you know I don't really put myself in that group, but I've done some political operations, and I'm in the group of people that were taken off the field, and that's what he talks about. Ali Alexander talks about how the GOP's best political operatives, the people that you know, are the ones that organized the poll watchers in Arizona, the people that organized the door knockers in Colorado, the people that uh, actually carry out the operations of a campaign at a high level, and the strategists. Well, they had been taken off the field. They had been taken off the board by the Democrats using lawfare, whether it was the case that they were wrapped into the January 6th investigation and bankrupted by legal fees and attempting to deal with that, whether it was that they were charged with uh, nonsensical crimes all over the country uh, for merely practicing politics, whatever the case was, actions by the Democrats removed these people. Think of these people like your your NCO Corps, your non-commissioned officer Corps within, say, the special operations community. It's, it's the backbone of the operations. You, you need your officers. You need good order and discipline. Absolutely. You need people to run things at a high level, at a strategic level. You need people to manage logistics. But between those people and the grunts, and it's hard to call people in special operations grunts, but between them and the door kickers, 
you need somebody as an intermediary to maintain the structure of what's happening, to make sure that the orders are followed, not just given, but followed to a T, to make sure that uh, when adaptations are, are needed and when improvisation is needed, it's the right kind of improvisation and the right kind of adaptations. Those are the operatives. And, and most of these people you wouldn't know. They're nameless, faceless people. In the case of Republicans, most of them live in Arlington, Virginia, or in Fairfax County. Arlington's a huge hub of them. And they are the people that, you know, staffed the 14th floor at uh, Roslyn Tower, or Arlington Tower in Roslyn, I guess. Uh, in, uh, in Roslyn, I lived in Roslyn at the time, uh, for the 2020 election. And these are your people. And so these people were taken off the board. That had a significant impact. Now, the question about this Pennsylvania election was, is it worth continuing to toil? Is it worth continuing to compromise your health? Is it worth continuing to uh, put yourself in such peril in these statewide elections uh, like this one with John Fetterman and Dr. Oz if, in fact, the country is so far gone that they will elect, and not just elect, but even if he had lost and it was a slim margin, but that millions of people will come out and they will vote for a stroke victim who is brain damaged, a six foot 10, extremely far left stroke victim who basically, you know, released pedophiles, released murderers from prison when he was on the parole board. He's six foot 10, 450 pounds. And then on top of all of it, he was brain damaged. And would the Democrat Party turn out in big numbers for that? And the answer was yes. The answer was yes. They did turn out for that. And it gets to the point that you have to understand, elections at the operational level, you know, it's like, what do the operatives think about? It's not the same thing that the content creator thinks about. It's not what the Ben Shapiro or the Benny Johnson or the Turning Points USA thinks about. You know, in, in that realm, in the, in the Ben Shapiro realm, there's a lot of thought about, well, how do we persuade people? Maybe they're already on our side. How do we persuade them on this issue? How do we nudge uh, the issue of vaccines? Or how do we move them on abortion? Or how do we deal with a particular topic? And how do we persuade? But in the realm of electoral political operations, it is not about persuasion. It is about activation. You know who, when they are activated, are going to vote for Republicans. And you know who, when they are activated... In other words, uh, caused to turn out, are going to vote for Democrats, basically. You know, if everyone's an individual, if free will is something that is an, an idea and a concept that is unimpeachable, then you tell me why, if I know your race, and or, or forget your race, I don't even need to know your race. If I know your zip code, if I know your zip code, I can tell you with a high degree of reliability, who you're going to vote for. If I know your zip code and I know your race, it almost becomes 100%. It's like 90% I can tell you who you're going to vote for. But all those people have free will, you might say. Well, if that's what you want to call it, fine. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a philosopher. But in the world of political operations, about who you can get to turn out. And that is what this election was about. It's no different than any other. But it happened at a much more micro scale 
in different ways all across the country than it, than it happened, say, in the 2020 presidential election. It's much less straightforward. Now, Dr. Oz was a weak candidate. We look at this tweet from Darren Beatty, and it's just hilarious. Uh, he, Darren Beatty from uh, Revolver.News tweeted uh, out, he said, The American dream is immigrating to the USA, working hard, graduating from Harvard, becoming a successful physician and researcher, making millions of dollars as a household name TV star, winning the party nomination as a Senate candidate, and losing to a brain-dead guy in sweatpants. And that is what Dr. Oz managed to pull off. And Dr. Oz was a weak candidate. There's no question about that. Now, if you want to know something even more frightening than, than that tweet is that John Fetterman himself is a Harvard graduate. Can you believe that? Can you believe that John Fetterman is a Harvard graduate? Well, he is. So you think about Dr. Oz and it's like, well, yeah, he's a celebrity. He's a household name. And the person that he was running against was basically a hedge fund, private equity stooge, kind of akin to Glenn Youngkin, I would say. Similar, more boring, a shorter. Of course, Glenn Youngkin is six foot nine. But the, the issue is that Dr. Oz has a couple of issues. I mean, number one is that he is a Turkish Muslim. In Pennsylvania, if you want to win a Republican general election as a general election candidate, you have to basically get white folks to vote for you. That's what the vote consists of in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz is not white. He's not a Christian. He is a Turkish Muslim. Uh, yes, you, you have that correct. He's a Turkish Muslim. And you say, well, if he's a Turkish Muslim, well, I mean, then he must agree with those hardcore Christians on the social issues, at least, right? Well, yeah, not exactly. He's traditionally been a Democrat. Turns out he's actually from New Jersey. Uh, and he doesn't agree with the Christians on the social issues. You say, how is that possible? Muslims are way to the right of most American Christians on social issues. Well, yeah, but Dr. Oz believes in gay marriage. Oh, okay, I guess we can use that. And abortion. What? Abortion? Jeez. And, and that's not it. Uh, you'll, you'll find that much of the Republican electorate is flexible a little bit on abortion, maybe, kind of, sort of. And they might be somewhat flexible on the whole gay marriage saying they don't love it, but uh, they can look the other way. But there's one thing, there's, there's one third rail among the Republican electorate. And it is amazing that it is not a third rail for the entire electorate. Now, it is really, if you just look at the raw surveys of people, but Democrats will, although opposing this, they will vote to go along with it because they don't oppose it strongly enough. And that issue, of course, is the idea of castrating children who are claimed to be transgender. And of course, this is a giant uh, scheme that amounts to nothing more than profiteering on the parts of the hospitals that do this and evil, sickening, sexual mutilation, uh, pedophilia on the part of the people that are carrying it out on children. I mean, frankly, you, you probably shouldn't be carrying it out on anybody but least of all children. And, and the reason we know this is pretty simple. Remember, I'm young. I'm 24 years old. I was not a kid all that long ago. And in my elementary school, there weren't any transgender kids. There were none. There was never one single student that I'm aware of, that anyone I know is aware of, and anyone they know is ever aware of. There were none. 
that were five years old, six years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, and ever raised their hand and said, you know, I'm actually a girl. Now think about that. When I was a kid, which wasn't that long ago, okay, when I was in elementary school, which was say 2003 to whatever, what, 2003 to 2009 or something, there was not one single child, same thing in middle school, same thing in high school. There wasn't one single child that ever raised their hand and said that they were transgender or said that they didn't feel like they were a boy. Well, this is the biological reality for these transgender children. If they're actually just born in the wrong body, then how come just a few years ago, and I was in California, nobody would have bullied them. They probably would have gone along with it, but none. Folks, the kids aren't coming up with this idea on their own. They're not coming up with this idea on their own. They're coming up with it because it's being suggested to them by pedophile teachers and by mass media, TikTok, etc. And then what's worse is that when they're talking to their parents, their kids say, well, you know, that sounds great. Let's go into some doctor. And then what's even worse than that is when they go into a doctor. You know, if I, if I went into a doctor uh, as a pediatrician when I was 10 and I said, yeah, doc, you know what I'd like you to do is chop off my testicles. The doctor would have looked at me and he would have said, Jesus, what a sense of humor he's got on him because he knew I was a little bit eccentric as a kid. Uh, but then if I said, you know, actually I'm, I'm serious. I'm deadly serious about this. He would have quickly referred me to mental health care. He would not have said, well, I know just the guy, Jacob, you go over here and he'll be happy to castrate you at age 10. No. So the world is moving so quickly and it is so noted. So of course, Dr. Oz is on board with all of this. In fact, he was one of the early adopters of the idea of, transgender children, if only for the fact that it generated ratings for his TV show, by the way. And, and, and he's the early adopter of a lot of kooky medical practices because they'd get ratings. I mean, the show was like one segment after another of, you're not going to believe this magic berry will cause you to lose 10 pounds in 10 days. You know, just the crazy, you know, medical fad clickbait, the equivalent of clickbait on television. So Dr. Oz could not win. He could not pull this out. I don't think that you can blame Trump in this case. You know, it's like, should Trump have endorsed the other guy? Well, problem is the, the electorate in Pennsylvania were not excited about that other guy. They were not. If Trump had endorsed him, Oz maybe still would have won the primary. You know, am I supposed to sit here and, and call for uh, people to go meet with Oz in a back room and tell him he's not allowed to run or something? I don't know. But this was a... Disaster, And so now you have a brain-dead, far-left lunatic who is headed to the Senate. Now, of course, it is possible that John Fetterman will have another stroke or some other health complication and, and won't make it. Will will either be indisposed as far as serving in office or will die, uh, at which point he will be then replaced, likely with Connor Lamb, who was his primary opponent, uh, who would then be appointed by the governor, as far as I know, the, the way the process works there. So that was the, the first thing I saw, of course, it was just unbelievable, but it's not as bad as what happened in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. If you think electing somebody who is a brain damaged ogre is a bad thing, well, how about electing a politician who is not merely brain damaged, but who is dead? That's what happened in Allegheny County. Tony DeLuca, a Democrat, died of lymphoma on October 9th. 
too late for election officials to change the ballots. DeLuca was 85. He served in the state legislature uh, 39 years. And uh, he defeated the Green Party's uh, Quinona or Quayona uh, Livingston. He garnered, uh, even though being dead, he garnered 85% of the vote in deep blue Allegheny County. So you see once again what all of this amounts to. What all of this really amounts to. What are we really talking about in all of this? I mean, it's even more pertinent in presidential elections because of the way the Electoral College works. But what we have is a situation in which Pennsylvania is a red state. Ohio is a red state, folks. Okay? Michigan's a red state. Except you have these little urban centers. And they're sometimes not so little. But you have these urban centers like Detroit or like Pittsburgh or like Philadelphia. And what happens in those places? Well, what happens in those places is that you have huge numbers of black voters, primarily. That's the Democrat power base in those areas who will go to the polls and will vote Democrat no matter what. Even if the guy they're voting for is dead. So that's what we're really dealing with. I mean, you want to just Cut to the point here. We have a situation in this country where Michigan is a red state. Ohio is a red state. Minnesota, frankly, is a red state. Wisconsin is a red state. We can go down the list. I can name a lot of others. Except you have some urban center with a million plus black voters who can be caused to vote and care so little about who they're voting for, other than the fact that there's a D next to their name, that they will even vote for somebody who is brain damaged or, in this case, dead. They will vote for somebody who has passed away, who is deader than a doornail. You're going to have some of that one way or another. I mean, you know, people that just didn't hear about it or what have you, but 85% of the vote? And he wasn't even running against a Republican. A Republican didn't even bother for that seat. So that's what you're dealing with. It is, a, it is an unbelievable thing. Now, what Republican Party mishaps could have led to this sort of failing? Uh, Stephen Miller gave a roundup on Tucker Carlson that I'm going to play for you here. I, I think it explains very well what was going on. Uh, and I think you'll find it quite worthy. Stephen Miller has been following this since the beginning. He's a former senior White House advisor. He joins us tonight. Stephen Miller, thanks so much for coming on. This seems like the simplest formula ever. Every normal person hates crime. You'd really have to be Kamala Harris to want more crime. Why aren't they running on this? They're not running on it for the reasons you identified. Joe Biden is the most unpopular president in American history. We should be looking at the largest midterm victory for Republicans, likewise, in American history. And instead, the forecasts are shrinking every single day. Why? Because Mitch McConnell isn't interested in running a national referendum that says elect Republicans and in January we seal the border, we reform law enforcement to go after criminals, not Republicans, and we end the war on America's children. No, what he wants to do is handpick candidates that... And that's true. We know that because I know I've never heard anything remotely close to that from Mitch McConnell. Have you? Or Kevin McCarthy, have you? 
he thinks will like Mitch and Mitch will like them. And if that means we have 48 seats or we have 49 seats, so be it. He gets to stay on as majority leader. So do you, let me just get to the essence of what this allegation is. What Stephen Miller's saying is that McConnell and McCarthy don't care about having huge majorities in the House and Senate. What they cared about was making sure that the Republicans who did win were Republicans who would not challenge their position in leadership, who would like them and they'd like each other. And we've seen this. I mean, we saw the fact that Laura Loomer got screwed in that primary down in Florida. She came very close still. I mean, it did an admirable job, I will say. An incredible job. Came very close. Uh, and, and yet they pummeled a bunch of money into the campaign of Daniel Webster. And this is one of many races. If there was not a primary opponent, they just didn't give the candidate any money. They'd rather see a Democrat get in than see a Republican who's going to uh, cause a situation where either McCarthy's not the Speaker of the House or McConnell is not the Senate Majority Leader. That is a scheme that took place, and he explains more here. We are witnessing in real time the greatest self-inflicted wound we have ever seen. If Republicans went out every day and said, we have had more illegal immigrants ever before this year than have been recorded in world history. We have increases in crime in our cities that no civilized nation has ever seen. And if you elect a Republican majority, we will go in in January and we will take the first funding bill and we will attach to it a requirement the border be shut and a requirement that the FBI stop attacking their opponents and start locking up and breaking apart organized crime in America. And you say that in every state and in every congressional district in this country, and you will win a landslide like you have never seen before. But nobody wants to step up and even make that promise. That's exactly right. And actually, there's precedent for it. The largest landslide in the history of the American presidency was 1972 by a candidate who did not win on charm, but won on law and order. And you can mock Richard Nixon all you want, but he was right. 49 and states. I, that's exactly right. So, again. Richard Nixon won 49 states on law and order. Just let that, just remember that. How dumb are the people who run the party? Well, a lot of people have been drinking the Frank Luntz Kool-Aid. I was a congressional staffer for almost a decade. I went to all of these presentations. So what they do is they sit you down and they say, well, we ran a message and it says that controlling wasteful Washington spending polls at 95%. To which I would say, you know what else polls at 95%? I like cotton candy. Uh, I think airplanes are really neat and super cool. Um, but I enjoy watching movies on Sunday. None of that gets anybody elected. What gets people elected is pushing messages where there's nowhere to hide. I'm for putting violent criminals behind bars. I'm for deporting exactly. legal aliens, and you're not, so I win and you lose. That's how you win elections. And how about Raphael Warnock? Why don't you explain that video where you seem to be committing spousal abuse? Like, why has that been memory hold? That guy's a U.S. senator. And and so he's exactly right. Now, what, what he doesn't explain, because they don't have a lot of time, is that Frank Luntz actually doesn't just come up with these polls and, and hold these meetings uh, for his own health. He does it because... He's being paid by the interest groups who benefit from Republicans pushing, say, tax cuts or free trade as opposed to shut down crime, shut down the border. And so they are, in some cases, uh, somebody like Frank Luntz is being paid by the Republicans and he's double dipping and being paid by the special interest. So he's being paid on both sides, essentially serving as an unregistered lobbyist. And what he's doing is creating data that says, look, 
People said that they think lower taxes will create jobs. We should make lower taxes our, our talking point. And yes, they did. But the question is, is not merely what was the overall approval rating of one thing or another, but what's actually going to motivate people to vote. And Republicans continually fail to make their campaigns out of issues that will motivate people to vote. This is why Trump absolutely destroyed his primary opponents and then won the general election in 2016 because he was willing to talk about immigration. It was an issue that Republicans wouldn't talk about unless you're discussing Marco Rubio's uh, Gang of Eight bill where he wanted to uh, do mass amnesty in 2013. Otherwise, Republicans weren't talking about it. And that ascribes to a lot of the failure on the issues. Now, are they stupid? Not necessarily. It's not mere stupidity. It has to do with corruption. It has to do with the fact that Frank Luntz is getting paid by Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola is donating to the NRCC and everybody's on the same page and everybody's looking the other way. And if it causes campaign losses, but they know they're going to win their particular safe district and they're going to be uh, in a higher position within House leadership, then they will go along with that. To hell with the country. They care more about their palace intrigue uh, wrangling within Capitol Hill and what that will create for them in terms of personal wealth when they leave Congress and now they have 15 different board seats or they have a no-show job at a lobbying firm or a law firm where they don't even have to show up and they get paid 600000 a year. That's what this is all about. Now, in the wake of all this, uh, it is the case that, of course, Kevin McCarthy, based on this failure, should not be made the Speaker of the House, obviously. He shouldn't be the House Minority Leader now. He should be removed from that post. He should not be. Of course, this kind of failure should not lead to promotion. It should lead to demotion. But he is a very formidable force on Capitol Hill. Obviously, he has the seniority because of his tenure, the time he's been there. But more than that, it's because of the fundraising. He knows how to make promises to special interests that lead them to raise a lot of money and give a lot of money to his campaign and give a lot of money to the party and give a lot of money to various PACs. And so that's why Kevin McCarthy is where he is. But based on this election failure, this election underperformance, he is not the guy who should lead House Republicans and should be third in line uh, behind the vice president. You know, president, vice president, speaker of the house. It should not be that way. But he is maneuvering to make sure it stays that way. Now, you have to think to yourself, who would lead uh, an insurrection, if you will, against him? Who would make sure that he doesn't uh, take over as speaker of the house? Well, some names come to mind. Matt Gates has criticized him openly. You know, I think one person who would probably be a person that would lead that effort, whether or not she were the actual person or not, she's too new. She wouldn't be the person. She's not been around the house long enough to be the speaker. But you would see somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene lead the opposition to Kevin McCarthy, wouldn't you? Well, we had a report out yesterday uh, that he met with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, he had this closed door meeting with her. He invited the press to wait outside the door of his office as she walked in and as she walked out. They were in there for 45 minutes, just the two of them and presumably a couple members of his staff, maybe. And when she walks out, the press say, what did you talk about? She says, no comment. And this meeting to me sounded 
like it bore a lot of resemblance to the meeting that McCarthy had with Madison Cawthorn. You you don't probably you probably haven't heard that name in a while, thought about that name in a while. You know, Madison Cawthorn, handsome guy in the wheelchair. Well, he was in a situation in which he was challenging McCarthy's leadership because McCarthy was screwing Republicans all over the country. As memorialized by this post uh, or this article in the Washington Post, how Kevin McCarthy's political machine worked to sway the GOP field, weed out candidates who could cause the House leader to tumble or, or cause the House leader trouble, uh, says the Washington Post here. Sorry, I'm looking at this as a bit of a distance here. So this is well known that he was running this effort. It's not a conspiracy theory. He was doing this. He basically admitted as much. His staff admitted as much, former staffers, etc. So he calls, he calls in Madison Cawthorn. And according to my sources and according to other people's sources, what happens in that meeting uh, earlier this year is that Kevin McCarthy threatens Madison Cawthorn and he says, you're going to stop causing me trouble or I'm going to release XYZ uh, in your race and cause you to lose the primary. And that is exactly what he did. Madison Cawthorn didn't back down. Kevin McCarthy releases videos of Madison Cawthorn nude with other men in bed, uh, forcing his genitals into their face. What exactly the circumstance was, I don't know. What I can tell you is you will never find any videos of me engaging in that kind of conduct because I've never engaged in that kind of conduct and never would. Never find me uh, naked in bed with another man uh, on video uh, doing this kind of thing. So those videos start coming out. There's more trickling out. Madison Cawthorn loses the primary and he shuts up. You haven't heard anything more from Madison Cawthorn after that, at least not at a high level. I haven't. I know I haven't. So he's going to be out of Congress now. Now, what we know about Marjorie Taylor Greene is that she has engaged in allegedly uh, depraved or at least you could say exotic sexual conduct of her own. Apparently, she was engaged in swinging activities uh, she allegedly had an uh, unapproved by her husband extramarital affair with this uh, tantric sexual healer who she had done CrossFit with. That was reported in the Daily Mail. Um, potentially others. You you hear these stories, and then you hear stories of her and you know young staffers in in D.C. Not necessarily her staffers, but people who are around D.C. Uh, and then most recently, her husband formally files for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences uh, just very recently. Finally files. It actually puts out, puts in the filing. Okay. So did Kevin McCarthy, I'm just going to ask the question, did Kevin McCarthy engage in sextortion against Marjorie Taylor Greene? Because many people say that Kevin McCarthy did that against Madison Cawthorn and the circumstances of his closed door meeting privately with Marjorie Taylor Greene are all but identical to the circumstances of the meeting in which he is alleged to have engaged in sextortion and then carried it out against Madison Cawthorn. I'm asking the question, and what I would like Marjorie Taylor Greene to do, Congresswoman Greene, is to come out and tell us what was discussed in that meeting and tell us if that's what Kevin McCarthy did. It would be illegal. It would be a crime. And it would crack the dam, which is a very fragile dam at this point, which keeps him uh, as the presumptive Speaker of the House. She needs to come out and be transparent about this. This ritual humiliation thing where this guy calls people in and extorts them and 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 leaves the press sitting outside and then they come out and they have to you know walk with the tail between their legs and say no comment. What the hell's going on up there? 
What's going on up on the hill? I, I'm hearing too many rumors about this stuff. And I didn't want to believe them at first when it came to Madison Cawthorn. And then I see the damn videos coming out of him nude humping some guy's face. Who is his cousin? I get. I don't know. I, I'm just saying I, I, we need to get some clarity on this thing. These closed door meetings are, are creepy and they're bizarre and they're unbecoming of the party. It's, um, it's just remarkable. So there's another circumstance in terms of all this that is, I would say, that drove the results on Tuesday. Now, we have this press release that was put out from the RNC. RNC opens Hispanic Community Center in Phoenix and Blake Masters launches Hispanic Coalition. Now, what have I been saying for a long time? Hispanics may be edging towards Republicans, but it's a dangerous thing to say, is this going to be the first time they really go for us? Well, they didn't last time. We lost them by 10. So, But you know what? Let's dump a bunch of money at Hispanics and hope that's going to be the first time and that will increase turnout when they do. Very dangerous strategy because if you don't win with Hispanics that year, and I mean the relevant Hispanics in that area, because Hispanics in Florida are not necessarily analogous to Hispanics in Maricopa County, Arizona. If you don't, you've just increased turnout among a group that you lose by 10, which means you have created votes for your opponent. Well, it looks like that's exactly what the Republican Party did in Arizona with all of this spending on Hispanics. They increased turnout for Hispanics, a group which votes plus 10 in that particular region for Democrats. They hurt themselves by doing this. A very foolish strategy. A, a terrible, awful, self-destructive strategy indeed. And what we see is that the real disaster for masters in Arizona came in the form of the white vote. You see, that's the other trouble. When If you're going to pander to the Hispanic vote, you're going to pander to the black vote. You only have so many hours in the day. You've only got so many dollars to spend. You may lose the white vote. And 72, 73% of this country identifies as white. That's the vote you need. Losing 2% of them is a lot worse than gaining 10% among blacks or gaining 30% among blacks in the vote. It's just the reality of the situation from a numerical standpoint. And exit polls, and we, we have to wait here. I mean, the Arizona data is absolutely third world. We know that. I don't know what the facts are. I just know they can't, at a bare minimum, I know they can't seem to get the votes counted in Arizona. Why that is remains to be seen. And part of the thing that I said is that, if you know, Republicans, when you have these poll watchers, when the GOP sends poll watchers, they ought to be in their in the age range of 35 to 50, not 65, not 75, because for one thing, you can impeach those people's vision, if nothing else. Could they really see what was happening 30 feet away? 35 to 50. And they should be lawyers, well-respected local lawyers, doctors, locals, lawyers, doctors, veterinarians, uh, civil engineers, architects. Okay. Not crackpots. Have you seen the people that show up as poll watchers for the Republican Party? I mean, we know who it's like 75 year old women, you know, wearing QAnon t-shirts and in Trump I trust hats and they're standing around and they're quacky lunatic type people. Okay. I don't hate them. I'm just saying 
they're really out there. They're posting on Facebook 72 times a day about the vaccine, even though they didn't get the vaccine. So what the hell do they care to post 72 times a day? Uh, but these kind of people, we've all seen them. You know who I'm talking about. Okay. That's who they have show up as a poll watcher. So let's say that person did observe corruption taking place. Or they thought they did. Well, that's the problem you see is that they're testimony isn't worth anything. You wouldn't want them at your trial testifying on your behalf if you were accused of some terrible crime and you were innocent. You wouldn't. You'd hope they were on the other guy's side because they don't exactly articulate well. They're past their prime mentally, kind of like Joe Biden. And they are so ideological that whatever they say is called into question. I mean, right down to how they're dressed, they're ideological. And they, these people that the, the Republicans should have should be dressed in business attire when they're conducting the poll watching. They should not be dressed up like they're going to, you know, a, a Trump campaign volunteer reunion in uh, middle of nowhere, Arizona. It's a big mistake. So I don't know why the Arizona irregularities exist, but they seem to exist and they can't get the votes counted. But in the exit polls, which are not ballots, but they're exit polls, uh, Masters lost the white vote to Kelly, 49 to 48%. Getting 52% of the white vote would have seen him win easily. So aren't you glad that he was spending on, wait for it, the Hispanic vote? Yeah, a big, a big waste indeed, a, a counterproductive move indeed. And uh, now when you talk about this white vote, it appears a lot of this white vote came out in at Arizona State University, a couple other universities, young single women. We're going to talk about the young single women situation coming up, but it is uh, quite interesting. Now, you know, this is a, a tweet that was um, released by uh, Ramsey Paul, uh, uh, R-A-M-Z Paul on uh, Twitter. He said, the Republicans like to blame election losses on fraud. But the reality is that white voters are being replaced by immigrants who look at America as a place to extract wealth via the vote. Eventually, that will collapse the system. But we have not reached that point. And that's from Ramsey Paul. Uh, and yeah, in large part, that is, the, that is the case. There are people who go to the polls and they will vote for whoever promises them the most free stuff. And uh, Biden and the Democrats will always offer them more free stuff. And the Republicans can come out and say, we believe in equality of opportunity and we want to create an economy where you can get a job and get off the couch and have a vibrant career and much more happiness. And all of that might be true, but they're just not interested in large part, in large part, in a lot of hardworking immigrants. But there is a group who are here to extract welfare. And if you look at the numbers, it is in fact the case that Immigrants pull out of the system far more in social welfare than do native-born Americans, and it's not even close. They show up, and when within a day of being here, they're already starting up the welfare applications, the affordable housing applications, the uh, free college applications, you name it. I mean, there's a whole industry that helps them do it. It's, it's incredible what happens. And those are just legal immigrants that we have the data on. Illegal immigrants, a whole another realm. I mean, that, that's, that's its own show. But there's this issue of the young vote. Uh, and, and this is also from Ramsey, Paul. Uh, I'm sorry, that's, uh, that's, um, we, that's the same tweet there. Um, 
in any event, there was a, a red wave. There was a red wave, but it was among the white vote. So among white voters, there was very much a red wave. Here's according to the exit polls. Uh, you see here basically that right in line with the population, 73% of votes were from whites, um, which means you had slightly elevated turnout among other groups, by the way. That's what that tells you. Uh, 60, what was it here? Uh, what, what was the poll? It's like 58% went Republican nationwide. Uh, black, it's like, you know, 86% to 10% as far as going for Democrats. Latinos still 60-40, uh, the old kind of 60-40 roof for Republicans. It has been the roof uh, for Bush in 2004. It was the roof for uh, Romney in certain states, and it has been the roof for Trump. It is what it is. It's a 60-40 group of people. You want to put more money into that group of people? You want to turn more of them out? Great. You're handing votes to the Democrats. It's that simple. Will they eventually turn and, and be majority Republican? Maybe. And then people point to Florida, but you don't understand. Florida is Cubans. It's, it's different. There's a whole lot of Cubans there. There's Venezuelan refugees there that, that hate communism. Whole different story. Not applicable to Hondurans and Arizona. Okay? Totally different. Utterly different. So it was a red wave among the white vote. No question about that. Uh, but you see here, there's just a heck of a lot of non-white voters and immigrant voters. A lot of them. Now you have the, the issue of Gen Z turnout here. Uh, and this is something that this uh, pollster points out. Uh, it, is, it is pretty remarkable here. Um, you know, in terms of the generational differences, for those of you listening, can't see the chart here. Uh, 65 plus is R plus 13 in the vote. 45 to 64 is R plus 11. 30 to 44 is D plus two. So they're, you know, kind of barely holding on to the 30 to 44 group. And then you have 18 to 29 year olds. Well, that group is D plus 28. So the college students, you know, to say 29 year olds, D plus 28. Now, traditionally, that has not been a concern, really. I mean, it's always the case that the people that don't have a lot of life experience, that are in college, that are idealistic, that, that haven't seen the real world in, in large part, well, they vote Democrat in a large margin. But it's never something we've worried about a whole lot because their turnout has been relatively low. Their turnout's been relatively low. And, and it's an old country anyway. It's getting older as time goes on. And so uh, they are a smaller group. People are having fewer and fewer kids. There's fewer of these young people. And so even if their turnout was high, well, there's not that many of them. Well, this was the exception. Why was that? Well, I think it has something to do with TikTok. And Scott Adams has posited this as well. TikTok, young women, young people. Uh, those of you who don't use TikTok, TikTok basically has been showering young people with these ads about uh, abortion. And the Republicans aren't just going to ban abortion, but they're going to take away your birth control. And then they're going to take away your tampons. Uh, and they're going to take away your, your, your razors to shave your private parts. I have seen that on TikTok, actually. They're going to ban that, too, or put a tax on that. Yeah, they're advertising this to college kids, college women. And then what happens is, either on that same post or on the next post... There's a little link you click and it says register to vote here. You click, boom, 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 mail-in ballot on the way. On the way to you. Yeah, that's real. 
and it's to millions of people and it's way, way bigger than it was in 2020. TikTok just kind of emerged during the pandemic as a big thing. It was big, but it's gotten way bigger. It's become ubiquitous. And, you know, it's not as though the Democrats have to spend a bunch of money on this effort. You know, pay TikTok a bunch of ads like they would say on Facebook. No, because TikTok, as you probably know, is owned by the Chinese. That's right. It's a Chinese company who works at the direction of the Chinese government. And the Chinese government is very interested in making sure that Democrats stay in power. So the Democrats don't even have to pay for this. On top of the fact that TikTok is spyware and everything else. So you see this young woman turn out. You see this uh, Gen Z turn out. And let me tell you something. I said to you on the show, I said, remember, I told you, I said, yeah, the abortion thing uh, will increase some turnout among Gen Z, but it's not a real issue for the whole rest of the vote. Neither is this democracy thing. Only college students could possibly care about democracy being on the ballot because they don't live in the real world, right? Remember I told you that? And I said that their turnout is low. There's not a whole lot of them that vote. It was not a huge issue. And so why would their turnout suddenly be high to an unprecedented degree? It is not because of the Supreme Court decision itself. Remember, a Supreme Court decision on its own is something that is arcane, I would say 90, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say 99% of the American public, and it's probably even higher than this, have never read a Supreme Court decision cover to cover. If they have, probably only half of that group was able to comprehend it, to know what they were looking at, to know what the references mean. And that's going to be my guess. In other words, it's an arcane thing that has to be very carefully narrowed down. Well, the media did that. You know, they said, this is what this means. Go out and protest. But here's the other thing I'll tell you. I was at the protests here in D.C. personally with a bullhorn, bullhorning these angry lesbians with blue hair and these soy boys who were out there protesting about abortion. And I was telling these people, look, you, don't, you need not worry about abortion. You need to worry about type 2 diabetes. Most of you are dangerously overweight. You are morbidly obese. And if you get a respiratory infection or, frankly, any sort of illness, you're going to die because you're so fat. So why are you worried about abortion? Pregnancy is not at the top of your list of risks in life, okay? It's not as though people are lining up to impregnate you. The feminist men at this rally are because they're so desperate, but you aren't even really interested in them because they're such soy boys. I mean, you appreciate that they're there holding up the same sign, but you'd never fuck them. I mean, that's, excuse my language, but that's the reality of this. And I was there. And, I, and what, what, what I will tell you is this. The protests over abortion that happened after the Dobbs ruling, either the leak and then the actual ruling, were nowhere near the size of the protests that happened over abortion merely after the election of Donald Trump. Because, you see, the election of Donald Trump was a much simpler thing for people to understand. And it was a much bigger news item around the world. And it was much more unexpected. It was much more of a surprise, you see. The Dobbs decision is not such a surprise because the Supreme Court was loaded up with conservatives and people figured that could happen. I'm going to tell you this. At the Kavanaugh hearings, there were bigger protests over abortion than there were after the Dobbs decision. At 
after the election of Donald Trump, the Women's March was 10 times the size of the women's marches that happened both in D.C. and around the country over abortion. Yes, they were. So you can't tell me that this Dobbs decision turned out so many people for abortion more than every other abortion scare that's happened in the political milieu over the past 20, 30 years. Because I've seen it with my own eyes. And it, it certainly doesn't do that in an environment where people have so much else going on, whether it's risk of nuclear war with Ukraine, whether it's the economy, whether it's inflation, uh, whether it's, it's that they're distracted over the student loan thing, which has probably turned out more Gen Z than even the abortion thing. So they fed both of these people this, uh, both these issues to these people, uh, both the student loan scam that Biden knew was never going to go through, the courts have already blocked it, and the abortion uh, issue. It was, it was fed to college students on college campuses using Chinese spyware geolocation to know exactly who they were feeding it to with total reliability, whether those people have actually ever posted on TikTok, identified themselves to TikTok or not. And then they have it registered to vote here. And here's the kicker. The Democrats don't even have to pay for that targeting. The Chinese do it for free. That is what led to this Gen Z college student turnout. The lines at colleges that had never been seen like this before around the country. That's what caused it. And it wasn't the Dobbs decision. And it wasn't Lindsey Graham giving a little press conference about abortion. No, it was the fact that it was fed to them on TikTok in a major way. And targeted to them in a way that has never been done before, not after the 2016 election, even though that was a much, much bigger shockwave on that issue. The women's marches were much bigger after the Trump inauguration than they were after Dobbs. Dobbs created protests in Washington, D.C. that can best be described as lackluster. In fact, what I will tell you is that after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the protests were bigger over abortion just because she died than they were any time surrounding the Dobbs decision. And I, this is firsthand reporting on the ground, personally, in person, with the bullhorn, with these people inches from my face. Okay? So take my word for it. This was a TikTok Chinese scheme to turn out Gen Z. And uh, in some part, it worked. It worked. They got unprecedented turnout among these groups. That's what it comes down to. Now, what about this whole white vote thing and what's really going on and what are some of the disparities? Well, we look around the country and you have these interesting situations where, you know, people want to throw the blame on Trump and they say, well, you know, it's Trump's fault because look at the fact that despite receiving the blessing of Donald Trump, uh, total support of Donald Trump, Herschel Walker can't pull out a victory on election night, whereas Brian Kemp, who Trump hates because Trump perceives that Brian Kemp didn't do enough uh, to prevent what he views as the theft of the uh, Georgia uh, election in, in 2020 in terms of the presidential election. So he, he hates uh, Brian Kemp. He loves Herschel Walker. And what happens? Well, Brian Kemp wins on election night handily against Stacey Abrams. Uh, who once again has burned $105 million on that race, just like Beto, burned $100 million plus once again. These people are great at burning money. But Kemp, so Kemp wins and Herschel Walker doesn't. What's the deal there? Is it people rejecting Trumpism? Are they rejecting the Trump-endorsed candidate? 
Well, I don't know about that. Again, most of these things come down to uh, multiple factors. I don't think there's an easy explanation here. You see the same thing in Ohio, by the way. See, because in Georgia, I might say, well, is it white voters going for Kemp but not Herschel Walker? Oh, I don't know. Do they just not check that box on their ballot because it's two black guys running against each other, but they vote for Kemp and they vote for Raffensperger, the uh, secretary of state who Trump hates maybe even more than Brian Kemp? Not sure. I mean, you look up in Ohio, all white candidates there and Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, an infamous never Trumper going back to 2015 uh, at the Cleveland debate, first debate. When Trump skewered Megyn Kelly, that I mean, he was out front of the debate, just huffing and puffing about how bad Trump was. Well, Mike DeWine, famously a never Trumper, I think back then was it was the attorney general of Ohio, not the governor, but maybe he was a governor. I, I can't recall. In any event, he becomes a governor at some point during that time. And uh, well, he won the election very handily. And J.D. Vance, who also won, well, not so handily. And of course, J.D. Vance had the blessing of Trump. And Mike DeWine had the hatred of Trump. So is it Trump's fault? Well, I don't again, I don't think there's an easy explanation here. Frankly, what it could be is, I mean, here's one thing that that I don't see people proposing. In that election, the Democrats spent a ton of money on what they viewed as a very formidable Senate candidate, Tim Ryan. A ton of money because they wanted Republicans to dump money in. Meanwhile, they didn't spend any money really any huge money, trying to defeat Mike DeWine. They just didn't view it as that important. Eh, let him be the moderate, you know, basically kind of a blue dog Republican, if you want to use that term, uh, governor, and uh, it doesn't really affect us. He's already the governor. What difference does it make? And so they had a weak person go up against DeWine, really weak, and they don't put much money behind that person. And then DeWine wins handily, and J.D. Vance has to struggle to pull it out. Again, multiple factors here. That people aren't thinking about. You know, if the Democrats put a hundred times more money behind the guy who's running against one candidate, yeah. Maybe there were some Republicans that went for Tim Ryan because of that dopey video he put out shooting a 22 pistol where he's he's leaning back like this and he, he's he's leaning away from the gun like a scared little girl, like you've ever seen a little girl or a total beginner shoot a pistol. And it's a 22 for God's sakes. And then he says, not bad for a Democrat. It's like, no, dude, actually it is bad. It is terrible form. It's a freaking 22 semi-auto pistol, 22 LR. I mean, it doesn't get much easier to shoot from a recoil standpoint than that. My God, maybe some of them went for him. I don't know. He's a look, if I were going to run a, a candidate on the Democrat side in Ohio for Senate, I can't think of a better guy to run than Tim Ryan. I mean, he's, he's got the right look. Um, he's got the right uh, background and he just didn't pull it out. So again, multifactorial. Uh, I found this exchange on Twitter kind of telling as far as people getting, you know, just way ahead of their skis on very early data and just being way too sure about their point of view on what happened in the election compared with the amount of data that actually exists. You see, Brian Kemp did well with the white vote here. If you're looking at the chart, he, he did like a, it was basically a four point improvement up to 60% of the white vote from 56% Brian Kemp did in Georgia. But like I said, I'm, I'm having a tough time believing that the white vote came out for Kemp, checked yes on Kemp, and then checked no on Herschel Walker, who Trump told them to vote for. I don't know. Maybe, maybe because of the whole abortion thing, maybe that actually hurt him. I mean, 
You want to talk about abortion? Well, it turns out that there's allegations that Herschel Walker paid for a woman's abortion. Maybe that accounts for this. By the way, whether those allegations are true, they're very flimsy. The Daily Beast put them out. We know the Daily Beast is infamous for fake news. The Daily Beast accused me of working for Omar Navarro, this guy who was running for Congress against Maxine Waters and threatening his ex-girlfriend who I'd never heard of. I met him maybe twice in passing at events, never heard of her. They accused me of threatening her, even though she gave them texts proving I threatened her. And it was with a number of mine that had been disconnected 10 months before the texts were made. They were just Photoshop, you know, fake texts with the fake SMS, whatever app on Android. And the reporters, this is the worst part, they knew they were fake because they knew that number was disconnected and they ran the story anyway. So the Daily Beast is the one accusing Herschel Walker of this, by the way. Every other media outlet, I've never found one that said they were able to independently confirm the Daily Beast reporting, but yet they repeated anyway, just so you know. But maybe that hurt him. I don't know. But anyway, this telling exchange here uh, that I saw on um, Twitter. I'm, I'm just going to kind of talk about this here. This is uh, from two kind of anonymous accounts, so I don't even know why I care that much. Um, but you have here uh, this uh, tweet says from Labs FTW. It says uh, DeWine won by 25. Vance only managed plus six in a plus 25 GOP environment. I don't think it is a plus 25 GOP environment. You see, because it's that in Florida. But Florida has also had like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Republicans move there. Maybe a million Republicans move there recently because they wanted to show up and vote for DeSantis, essentially, and, and have the other benefits. But it's like, yeah, I don't know if that's the environment. It's the environment in Ohio because there's a weak Democrat opponent for DeWine and they don't put any money into them. And DeWine's the incumbent, so there's an incumbent advantage. So again, people are getting way too sure about this. So they continue. Um, Kemp won by six. Walker didn't reach 50%, ending up in a runoff. Uh, it says Sununu won by 16. Uh, Buldu got blown out by 9.5, a minus 25 collapse. Uh, that one is because it was a weak Trumpist candidate. Okay, so this person says roughly 85% of Trump's endorsements won. So there you go. If Trump's really the kiss of death, why do 85% of his endorsements win? And the person replies, endorsements don't matter for shit. He endorsed DeSantis too. All of his handicapped candidates either lost or won much more narrowly than they should have. The election denier accusations clearly worked. Whether we like it or not, the GOP can ignore this at their own peril. Okay, so look, there's some truth in this. Like anything else, there's some truth and, and a lot of untruth. But here's what I'll say about this. There were certainly instances where, you know, it wasn't merely, oh, Trump's endorsement equals kiss of death. You get endorsed by Trump, you lose. Obviously, that's not true. He endorsed, you know, 85% plus one. But there were these cases where you had two candidates in a primary, in a tough primary, and Trump endorsed the one who came to Mar-a-Lago and promised to make Trump's personal grievances over the 2020 election, the centerpiece of not just their primary campaign, but their general election and, in fact, their term in office. And Trump endorsed these people who said they would do that, whether that issue is a good issue or not. Well, I tend to think probably not. And he endorsed them despite any other complete weaknesses or failings in their experience, their character, their background, their articulation, their intelligence in the moment, their ability to 
bring out voters in the general. So yes, that happened. I mean, kind of case in point in, in, as far as all this was the gubernatorial election in Maryland. Larry Hogan leaving office. He is a Republican in name only, but he's a Republican governor in Maryland who ensures that, you know, they don't just release all of the violent felons from jail in Maryland like the like they would like to do. So you have a candidate who has a chance to replace Larry Hogan. They're not going to vote for a far right Republican. OK, in the state of Maryland. What does Trump do? Trump endorses a candidate who is just too far right for the state of Maryland, which is really a blue state, number one. But number two is a awful candidate by any other measure, even if he were in a R plus 60 district in the panhandle of Florida, even if he were, he's a weak candidate, weak articulation. And the reason that Trump endorsed him is because he went to Mar-a-Lago to hang out and promised Trump that he would make Trump's personal grievances over the 2020 election, which aren't just his personal grievances, but are grievances shared by a lot of people, but make those grievances the centerpiece of his campaign. And with Trump's endorsement, he wins the primary, which again, folks, you have to say, if Trump's endorsement so bad, so worthless, so whatever, well, all the people in Maryland had to do in the GOP electorate is pick the moderate guy anyway, right? I mean, again, you can't rest all the blame in one place. And you know, what happens is, of course, that the, the candidate with Trump's endorsement wins and he gets beat by this uh, Westmore black governor, first black governor of Maryland, who is a far left, uh, you know, typical far leftist who's going to turn Maryland's already bad crime problem into a real issue, a real issue. Um, so we see here uh, some some last bit of data on this issue, the, the unmarried women. So you look here, married men broke Republican by 20 points, R plus 20. Married women broke R by 14 points. You see, it's not a women issue, folks. It's not. Uh, married women vote Republican in huge numbers. R plus 14. Unmarried men uh, were uh, R by 7. So you see, married women are more likely to vote Republican than unmarried men by a factor of double in this case, plus 7 versus plus 14. Married women plus 14. Unmarried men plus seven, Republican. But, this is but, what's the issue here? Unmarried women broke Democrat by a whopping 37 points. Unmarried women, 37 points. So plus 14, married women go Republican. Unmarried women go Democrat, plus 37. There's your TikTok. Married women don't spend a great deal of time on TikTok, at least not most of them in any appreciable, statistically measurable number. There are some unmarried women live on TikTok and they were manipulated out to the polls. They don't get their news on TV. They don't get their news on Google. They get their news on TikTok. They get all their information from TikTok. They live on TikTok hours a day in many cases with rare exception. And they were brought out to the polls to vote. And this is a group you cannot win with and you're not going to win with them. Now, the ones who are older and unmarried, you're really never going to win with them. The ones who are younger and unmarried, they need to get married. And, you know, part of this is that you need a change in the economy that's going to force these women into the marriage market. So you have to understand, you know, in a, in a normal economy, in a normal economy, in a normal interest rate environment, this whole idea of like women just being single and they're just perpetually single and they're just in the workforce and they're basically acting like men and they're acting like bachelors, female bachelors. 
this doesn't exist in a normal economy. It only exists when the economy is maximally frothy, fueled by trillions of dollars of newly minted money, fueled by zero interest rates, fueled by quantitative easing, fueled by loose fiscal policy, fueled by record spending in Washington, D.C., fueled by tech valuations that are completely out of this universe and unglued from the reality of the businesses that underlie those equities. Only in that environment do you have this situation where women just stay unmarried. Only. I mean, this, this, this nuttiness where you have these women with 110 IQs, smart women, but you know, they're working at tech companies as program managers or program leads. You say like, what is that? Well, nobody knows. Nobody really knows what it is they actually do, least of all the company who hired them. And they're paid $100,000 a year, $150,000, even $200,000 plus a year, uh, when by all appearances, they have zero value that, that's measurable to the tech company. They don't know how to program a computer in any language. They don't know how to create software. They don't even understand the way computers or software work. They, they spend their time uh, making TikTok videos about how they're visiting their Amazon office's kombucha bar four times a day and how they're getting off work at 4.45 to go drink with their buddies like they're, again, bachelors going out to the sports bar with their friends. This is only possible in a zero interest rate environment. Facebook just laid off 11,000 people. Many of them are these sorts of people, these program managers, etc. Nobody really knows what they do. There's five of them for every software engineer. It doesn't make any sense. Is it affirmative action hiring to get the numbers up? Who knows? Then they can say they're women in STEM. And it's like, well, yeah, they work for a company that does STEM. But what do they do really? I guess they make TikToks. That involves technology. They use their phone. Facebook just laid off 11,000. Amazon's laying off. The economy's turning. And, and that's going to lead to a liquidation of these people in the workforce. We saw women leaving the workforce, known as the Great Resignation during the pandemic. That kind of slowed down. But now the ones who haven't are going to be leaving vis-a-vis -vis layoffs by the looks of this. I mean, and, and that's good. I mean, these women who are working in these tech companies, and men, frankly, but we're speaking about women here, that are making TikToks all day, that are doing when they're doing any work, it's busy work. It doesn't really matter. Company could surely live without it. They've got to go. They got to lose those jobs. They got to go back and earn their MRS degree. They've got to go get married and have children and start voting Republican because that's what married women do. This concept that, you know, they're just going to be perpetually single. I mean, these, these single women uh, who's going to protect them from the crime waves that they're lining up to vote for? Certainly not their miniature golden doodles. That's not going to do it. I mean, really, who, who's going to protect them from the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of violent, psychotic thugs that are going to be released onto the streets of their 
so-called gentrified neighborhoods to rob them, to rape them, to kill them, to beat them down and steal from them and harass them. Who's going to protect them? Not, not Rufus, the little miniature doodle. He's not. He's not going to do it. They got to think about this here. The women are not meant to live on their own. Men are not, frankly, either. We have to get this societal structure figured out here, folks. This is nuts. Female bachelors? This is a crazy concept. And then they, they, they're they what? They're making $150,000 a year. They're spending it all at Lululemon on ads that were fed to them on TikTok for yoga pants. And then they're spending it on, you know, cycling, indoor cycling spin classes. And they're spending it on uh, smoothies that are $9 and kombucha and health supplements. And they're voting Democrat. And the reason they're voting Democrat is because they are in a position that their maternal instincts don't have an outlet. The maternal instincts of these single women don't have an outlet. Well, yeah, 10% of it goes to Rufus the Golden Doodle. Yeah, sure. But generally speaking, they don't have an outlet. They don't have children. If they had children, you know, they'd realize, well, I, I don't want my children to be uh, castrated in school, so I better vote Republican. And married women, you see here, well, they're R plus 14 Republican, seven points higher than unmarried men. So instead, where do those maternal instincts go? Well, they go to voting for Democrats who are going to be the mothers of these uh, poor thugs in jail who should really be out on the streets because they need a second chance or in most cases, a 27th chance uh, to not rob or kill or loot or deal dope. The maternal instincts go to uh, help the children in Ukraine with another $50 billion spending package. Let's, you know, act out our maternal instincts for children in Ukraine at the ballot box by voting for Democrats. It's a contorted, contorted reality. And I don't blame these women. You see, that's the key. I don't blame them. They're thrust into the colleges. They're loaded up with debt. Whether they're loaded up with debt in the form of student loans, or it's a debt that they owe to their parents. You see, because... And these women, well, let's say they didn't have to get student loans. Maybe their dad is really well off and their parents are really well off and the parents pay for their $150,000, $200,000 college degree. Well, they're not going to then just go tell their parents, I'm not going to use my college degree at all. No, no, they're not. And they're told, well, you got to get involved with STEM and that's where the money's at. So they go get involved in STEM. But women and computer programming, I mean, come on. I mean, there's, there's women who can do it. There's women who can program their way to the moon, but most women can't program their way out of a paper bag. And so then they're in the tech company and now they've got their $3,000 a month, one bedroom apartment and they've got the student loans. Well, they can pay that just barely with the salary from Amazon. But what are they going to do if they leave Amazon? Well, now they're 27, now they're 28, now they're 30. And they're watching The Bachelor in the form of clips on TikTok, maybe. And there, uh, it appears that what they're entitled to is, uh, or The Bachelorette or whatever, they're entitled to uh, 10 perfectly good-looking, six-foot-two men 
who are incredibly intelligent, smart, gracious, kind, capable, protective, to line up for them and audition for them, except, wait a second, those men aren't actually as common as they think. Like, there's this uh, female delusion calculator, it's called, uh, online, I, I believe that's what it's called. It says, like, okay, women, what are you looking for? And it's like, he has to be this tall, has to make this much, um, and um, has to be this race and age range. Just basic demographic. Okay, you, and then you say, how many men are like that in this city? And it's like, oh my God, it's a city of a million people, there's 200 of them. And they have to be single, and they have to be into you. That's kind of tough. And you have to cross paths with them somehow. So, and they have to turn out not to be nuts or whatever. So, there's that issue. And now they're 30. And, and if they manage to find a man like that, well, he's not interested in them because they're 30. Maybe he wants to have three, four kids. He should. Can't do that when she's 30. If you're just starting the relationship, probably not anyway. So it's a, it's a big quandary that these women are in, that our society's in. So when you, when you see... This situation of the unmarried women, of the young unmarried women, of the Gen Z vote, and you're thinking about it through the boomer lens of, well, I guess it was the Supreme Court decision, and those women must have all read that Supreme Court decision. Well, we know they didn't read the Supreme Court decision. Nobody reads Supreme Court decisions outside of a very small group of people. In fact, I would say probably less than one fewer than one percent of lawyers in this country read that supreme court decision cover to cover i haven't i haven't read it cover to cover and so it wasn't that well it, it must be msnbc they don't watch msnbc either it was tiktok and it's their misplaced maternal instincts that without having an outlet of having children remember they're say they're 26 years old if this were 200 years ago, they would have started having children 10 years earlier in all likelihood, or, or even earlier, frankly, depending on, you know, in a world without birth certificates and you're just going by how they look and uh, lost count of the years. I mean, you think about that. They'd have been married off at 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 at the latest. It's a whole new world. And you cannot expect people's deeply rooted, evolutionarily motivated, hormonally caused, psychologically robust instincts to change as quickly as our society decides we're going to change social mores or as quickly as the university decides that they're going to raise the prices from $3,000 to $200,000. You can't expect that to happen, and it hasn't happened. And when you take those instincts and those psychological predispositions and they don't have an outlet, well, they're going to find an outlet. And the question is, what will it be? And then you have, well, look at this. We have TikTok. TikTok offers an outlet. Maybe it's left-wing Political virtue signaling. Yeah, that's one way you can put your maternal instincts uh, to use. Go vote Democrat. That checks a box for a week. Okay, what's next? Buy a hamster. Buy a golden doodle. I don't know. You see, and so this is a, 
a deeply rooted psychological phenomenon. It is not merely, oh, this news item uh, turned out the Gen Zers and, and namely the unmarried women for Democrats. No, no, not at all. And you are not going to get these unmarried women to vote Republican. That is a fool's errand. That is the world of uh, Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk and the content creators. And let's see if we can make a persuasive TikTok of our own. And then boom, TikTok censors it anyway. Boom, banned from Facebook anyway. So that's a fool's errand. If you want this to change, then you can either try to compete with the turnout cause of this. But I don't think you can easily do that. Or you can get these unmarried women married. Well, that's probably a better solution. Now, how you can do that in any systemic uh, you know, sort of reliable, uh, statistically significant way is, uh, is a whole nother question. Lee Zeldin lost a gubernatorial run, but he did bring out a lot of Republican votes for candidates in that region, flipped a couple of seats. So this is a, this is a much larger set of phenomenons that we're talking about here that caused what we saw around the country. Arizona State University, how many students go there? 50,000 students. TikTok decides we're going to light them up and give them a voter registration link. Bing, boom, they're voting. I mean, that is a big deal. And there's other universities there as well. There's Northern Arizona University, there's Grand Canyon University, there's a couple. And then a, a percentage of those people stay in Arizona afterwards or stay in the area, at least for a number of years. So you have all those young people there and they're competing with the retirees for the for, for, for turnout. It's a big deal. And, and the other part of this is that, you know, the not every uh, voter who voted for Trump in 2016 in the Rust Belt, let's say, is going to vote for him or vote for Republicans in 2022. And one big part of that is that they're dead. A lot of them died. I know several just, you know, distant family members or whatever. They just they're dead. You know, they were old Trump voters and they passed away. Um, that or they moved to Florida so that whoopee, DeSantis can win by 20 instead of 10. Congrats. Uh, but they're all in Florida. And so as it turns out, the idea that Republicans are going to have a wet, red wave and the modified version of that narrative that I've been a proponent of, that Ali Alexander has been a proponent of, that it was going to be smaller than we thought, not plus 12, but plus six. Well, that played out. Popular vote was plus six Republican on Tuesday. The issue is that because of these highly nuanced, highly detailed phenomenons, TikTok, Gen Z vote, white vote issues, candidate quality issues, spread out in different races across the country, vote counting issues maybe at some smaller level, that 6% was not equally distributed. And again, a huge part of that is you suck hundreds of thousands of active Republican voters to Florida and well, they, they voted. They voted in Florida. Congrats. So, and again, you say, well, it was fewer than 2020. Yes, but it's a, it's not a presidential election. It's a midterm. And remember, Florida constantly has a certain percentage of their retirees dying off. It's a retirement haven. So they die. All right. I want to talk about this FTX story. That's my midterm roundup for now. We'll talk more about this probably Monday. Uh, but I want to talk to you about what's going on with this FTX. It matters, even if you don't have money at FTX, even if you don't have money in crypto, because there are systemic risks involved here. One man's poor decisions, one man's greed, one man's 
losses, one firm's losses can quickly become your problem. You saw that in 2008. I don't know how many of you watching in 2008 had your money at Lehman Brothers. Probably not very many of you. At least knowingly, maybe your pension had put some money there. But even though you didn't, Lehman Brothers collapse certainly affected you. Bear Stearns, same story. And so when a financial institution, and this is nowhere near the size of Lehman Brothers, could be $100 billion total by the time it's all said and done. But when that happens, it, it will have an effect. So uh, FTX, of course, was founded and headed up by this Sam Bankman-Fried known as SBF. And I just want to give you an idea of who this person is. Um, here's a, looks like a, a TikTok style video or something. It's in portrait format. Um, introduction to Sam Bankman-Fried that I happen to stumble across. Uh, take a listen here. Okay, the guy you see next to me is the most generous billionaire in the world. And I found him. Hi, my name is Sam, and this is my story. Sam has crazy hair. Sam is vegan. Sam sleeps five hours a night. Sam lives in the Bahamas with ten roommates. Wait a second. So this is supposed to make me want to send my money to this guy? He can't do his hair or dress. For those of you who, who are just listening, you'll have to look this up. I mean, this guy, just the, the slovenly look of him. He's just fat. He, look, he needs a brassiere, frankly. Probably a B or C cup brassiere. He can't do that. He doesn't sleep for some reason. He can't sleep at night. Wonder why. Uh, he lives in the Bahamas with 10 roommates. Uh, okay, send my money to the Bahamas. These are all red flags here. Oh, oh, and he's vegan. Yeah, there, that's a deal breaker for me, obviously. Sam has crazy hair. Sam is vegan. Sam sleeps five hours a night. Sam lives in the Bahamas with 10 roommates. Sam is 29 years old only, but Sam has $22 billion. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, that is an introduction. I think a good introduction to Sam Bankman. Freed. And some of these people, they, they talk about $22 billion and they say like, well, what about, where did the money go? And there's this explanation of this that I thought was, was worthy because a lot of people don't understand how this works. You know, there, there's this tweet out. It says here, um, okay, answer me this at uh, 3AC, three arrows, capital liquidated Alameda, which is Sam Bankman Freed's side hedge fund liquidated FTX insolvent. Then who made all the money? In other words, people ask, where did the money go? And this guy offers an explanation to this question. Now, it's not to say that people were not enriched and that people did actually liquidate holdings and get cash out and enrich themselves in cash terms. It always happens. But, but where did all the money go? Because it's like way too much money and where did it all go? Well, here's an explanation. This person, Ben McMillan, uh, replies to this David Hoffman bedrock here. And he says, a neighborhood with 100 houses has one sale for 1 million. So one of the 100 houses sells for $1 million. Everyone thinks there's a hundred million of equity, right? Because if that house sold for a million and they're all the same, let's say they're all worth that. Okay. So now everyone just marks that their, their home is worth a million as well. Let's just assume it, they are all the same house because they use a comparable transaction to determine the value. Turns out the other 99 houses 
only end up selling for $100,000. So only $9.9 million of, quote, equity. No one got the $91.1 million. It was always imaginary. It was always notional value. It wasn't realized value. And this has always been an issue in the world of venture capital, where they mark up these tech companies. And this last round of tech companies, in the last several years, this has been uh, basically uh, tantamount to the dot-com bubble, except they called them apps instead of websites. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just, it is so precisely similar. I mean, there were, you think that DoorDash is unique? There were online food delivery services in 96 that had multi-billion dollar valuations or multi-tens of billion dollar valuations or more. They didn't make any money. They weren't profitable. They weren't good businesses. They were convenient to use. They weren't good businesses. And they went out of business. And so this, this notional value, and in the, in the VC world, it's a question of how much money in the cash terms have they actually returned to investors? Because anybody can do this, this, or this. We say, well, that transaction happened. That means our portfolio is worth X. But how much cash did you actually return? Because as we see so often, things receive crazy valuations in the private market. They, they, they claim to have crazy values. And what we see here is that Sam Bankman-Fried was worth $22 billion. And two days later, he was worth negative $900 million. And today, he might be worth negative $9 billion. So was he ever actually worth the, the $22 billion if... That worth was so fragile that just two days later, it was negative $9 billion. So you see the idea here. It's not that all of the losses are real losses. So, for example, people talk about Bernie Madoff, and they say the Bernie Madoff scheme was a 50 or sometimes they say $65 billion Ponzi scheme. What's the reality? The reality was that if you add up all the investments that were ever put into Madoff's uh, funds, there was 12 billion put in, 11 or 12 billion. 12 billion. Now, all these people thought they were making 20% a year compounded. So they thought, let's say they put in a million, they thought that 20 years later that it was worth 30 million. But it wasn't. It was still, at best, only worth a million dollars. Now, if you add up the entire notional value that people thought that they had, with Madoff, yeah, it was $50 billion or it was $65 billion or whatever. But it was $12 billion of real cash. And, and now they're paying off the old investors, and so there's the, these losses that accrue, and then everybody runs for the exits, and they all lose. And there were people that were feeder funds for Madoff that cleared $8 billion in cash because they were a separate hedge fund, put the money with Madoff, got money out, paid themselves. They made $8 billion in one case. guy recently, and he drowned in his pool in suspicious circumstances, which was kind of strange in Florida a couple of years back that story. I remember. So that's how this, that's how the concept works for those of you having trouble conceptualizing this. And I don't blame you. Um, so that's, that's that as far as the, the concept of notional losses and real losses, but there are many real losses here uh, by the looks of it, many, many real losses. So um, what's really going on? I mean, what, what happened was that uh, beginning around Saturday evening or Saturday afternoon, uh, New York city time, Eastern time, I started to see rumors about liquidity issues at FTX. I don't. I didn't really know where they were coming from. Maybe former employees. It wasn't exactly clear to me. Didn't look into it too deeply, really. 
Uh, by Sunday, the rumors grew even more. The CEO of their main competitor, Binance, which we're not sure Binance is any more well-run than this. It's all Wild West, unregulated world. And even if it were regulated, I mean, they're all regulated to some degree, right? They're all regulated in the sense that they're not allowed to commit securities fraud. The question is, are they regulated in real time by somebody like the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency? We caught a senior guy over there on Predator DC. So after release that episode, Mark Holtz. Anyway, they are not regulated in real time. So like the SEC announces their investigation into this, the DOJ announces their investigation into this, or at least it, it comes out non-publicly yesterday. It's like, oh, thanks guys. You're just in the nick of time. And they're always late to the ball. They'd rather go after the low hanging fruit, you know, some little Ponzi guy in Florida that takes a million or something. It's just easier for them than taking on something like this. By the way, the former commissioner of the CFTC, that's the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. They have jurisdiction over a lot of this because it involves currencies and that's part of their domain is currency markets and derivatives markets. Well, the former chair of the CFTC, uh, she was hired at Binance um, as soon as she left. They have a tweet that said, welcome commissioner so-and-so. To, and there's the new one, the current one, who's like taking selfies, smiling with this character at CFTC headquarters. And talking about his crazy hair and how she likes his crazy hair. He's got better hair than she does or something. So these regulators are incompetent. It's not that regulation fixes this. It doesn't really fix it. Lehman Brothers was highly regulated. Didn't matter. The regulators can't save you. Here's the thing. Here's the takeaway, folks. The regulators aren't going to save you. Lehman Brothers was fully regulated. Bear Stearns was fully regulated. The reality is the regulators can't just find everything that's happening in real time when these people have their own lawyers, their own compliance counsel, their own lobbyists, which will hamper those investigations. And even if they aren't hampered, who says they're going to look? I mean, people sent in whistleblower complaints about Madoff to the SEC. Uh, Harry Markopoulos, the famous whistleblower in that case, he said, yeah, Madoff statements to his investors say traded 10,000 OEX options. That's the S&P 100 cash settled index. He says, nobody's traded the, the OEX in years. It's barely active. The whole open interest of all the option chains on it don't add up to this one investor's alleged multiple times a month trading activity in his account that Madoff says he did. There's a problem here, obviously. He sent in multiple letters. SEC didn't act. So remember, folks, the, the, the regulators are never going to be your salvation. The best they can ever do is maybe, maybe, and this is rare, recover a couple of pennies on the dollar from you and then send them out to you seven, eight, ten years later. The regulators won't save you. Only your own judgment and discernment can save you. Only that. You have to be smart. You can't rely on a guru. You can't rely on regulators. You have to take everything uh, at, at face value and do your best to do your own due diligence and recognize when something sounds too good to be true. So that happens. Uh, Binance comes in. They say they're going to uh, acquire FTX after they alleged or said that they were going to start liquidating their holdings of FTX's proprietary token known as FTT for short. Didn't make a whole lot of sense. Why sell their token, but then acquire them? And it was a little bit off. And he said, of course, pending due diligence can leave any time, non-binding letter of intent to do that. 
very quickly into their due diligence. They learn, oh, there's already an SEC investigation. There's a CFTC investigation. There's a DOG, DOJ investigation firing up. We're out of here. They don't do that. Among other problems they may have found in their half a day of due diligence. And so they pull out of the deal and that sends the FTT token from you know 28, which it was hanging out at 22, crashes to five, crashes down into the two handle. Uh, I don't, I mean, the FTT token, I'll tell you where it's at right now uh, as we're here live on the show at uh, 3.45 p.m. on uh, Thursday. Uh, looks like it's traded back up to what the... Uh, $3.62 level. I mean, it's just, and people are, people are basically trying to sell their portfolios at FTX for pennies on the dollar. Um, so basically you're saying, I'll give you cash now. I'll give you two cents on the dollar now, hoping I'll get eight cents on the dollar when the bankruptcy litigation finally wraps up and I get my check. That's happening off market over the counter. So it is a, a, a remarkable, but not surprising in my view, collapse. In fact, I have posts going back talking about how can anybody trust this guy? I mean, he look at him for one thing. Look at the way he's dressed. He is a fat, slovenly vegan who goes around moping around, dressing like like a resident at, at, at a home for the mentally disabled. And that voice he does, I mean, at least you can say for Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, at least you can say she was good looking and she put herself together. I don't know why she did the fake, you know, male voice thing. I never liked that. It never made sense to me. That fake voice that she did, that never computed. She thought it was a good thing. I don't, I never liked it. We should say, oh, I'm like a guy, everyone, listen to me. She had this weird confabulated fake voice. And, and there's a couple tapes of her not doing the voice where you can hear it. It's like, yeah, there's, there's a normal blonde lady. There's her voice. Okay. Now, what would be even funnier is if this guy's weird, high-pitched, speech impediment laden nerd voice were also fake. What if he normally talks like a normal guy, even a kind of articulate guy, but then he does this weird thing where he talks like a nerd, Sam from FTX, you know, that kind of fake thing. He, it doesn't even sound real because if it were real, you know, and you're as rich as he is, you'd hire a voice coach at some point like Bill Gates or anyone else. I mean, Bill Gates, you think Bill Gates has a really off-putting sounding voice and articulation now? Go back and listen to him when he was in his early 20s. Oh, it was awful. That's why he had Steve Ballmer, you know, big six foot three guy, six foot four guy. No, no, he's not six foot four. That's a that's an internet thing. I actually read that. Steve Ballmer on the internet says he's, it says all over the internet, Steve Ballmer's six five. And I met him, he's five foot 11 and he says he's five foot 11. So sorry, it's a weird thing, but he's a bigger guy than Bill Gates and, and slightly less creepy looking back then. At least he looks pretty normal now, but you hire somebody. So like, listen to Sam Bankman Fried here testifying before Congress. I think this is the house financial services committee. I could be wrong, uh, but take a listen to this congressional testimony here. Last thing that I'll say is if you look at what precipitated some of the 2008 financial crisis, you saw a number of bilateral bespoke non-reported uh, transactions happening between financial counterparties, which then got repackaged and re-leveraged again and again and again, such that no one knew how much risk was in that system until it all fell apart. If you compare that to what happens on FTX or other major cryptocurrency venues today, there is complete transparency about the full open interest. There is complete transparency about the positions that are held. There is a robust, robust, consistent risk framework 
applied and we're excited to work with the CFTC on our uh, U.S. licensed and regulated venue um, to bring a lot of this. Uh, uh, and actually, all of that constitutes just a complete lie. If you compare what happens or what happened with FTX to what happened at Lehman Brothers circa 2007, it makes Lehman Brothers look sterling in its levels of ethical soundness in comparison. I mean, compared with Wall Street, this is the whole absolute contradiction of this whole crypto world. It's like, we're the solution to Wall Street, even though our coins don't do any of the actual utility that they claim to do. And it's like, we're, we're the solution to Wall Street's worst aspects because we're on the blockchain, man. The blockchain's great. Even the people that say, oh, I'm not a fan of cryptocurrency, but blockchain's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. It's like, why? Why? They can never tell me why it's great. Why is it so magical to have everything decentralized all over the place? And like, it's a decentralized, immutable public ledger. It's secure, man. You couldn't have the kind of looting that happened at uh, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and Madoff circa 2005, 6, 7, 8, because it was happening years in advance of the actual meltdown. You can't have that here. We have an immutable public ledger. It's like, yeah, well, what happens if you do something off ledger, which is a big buzzword these days? Oh, we'd never do that. Oh, really? You know, because there's a ledger of sorts in the stock market as well. There's a ledger of trades in the futures market as well. It's called the record of the trade. It's a ledger. The buyer has it. The seller has it. The exchange has it. The custodian has it. And then they have what's called settlement, where all the records are reconciled. Sometimes it's T plus two, T plus three. Sometimes it takes them a couple of days to make sure that's all matched up and it's matched up and it's done. It's called settlement. It's nothing new. Now, you know, you can do over the counter trades in stock as well. I own stock. You want it. You buy it for me. I give it to you. There were OTC transactions. That's what he talks about. But it turns out you've got the same problem in the crypto world of OTC, you know, dark transactions that are over leveraged and that are sometimes actually fundamentally corrupt in nature and nobody knows it until it's too late. Yes. And so they can't price the risk accordingly. accordingly. They can't hedge accordingly. They can't make determinations about the inherent counterparty risk and exposure of those institutions because they can't view that exposure that those institutions have taken on anywhere. So they, nobody can properly price the risk. Taking risk is one thing, but if it's transparent, then the market can make determinations about that risk. Like, well, okay, Bill Huang, remember Arkegos or Arkegos Capital, the, the fund headed by that Bill Huang. And it's like, okay, Bill Huang, um, you want to short these stocks and buy these stocks and you want us to loan you money to do it, here's $15 billion. Problem was, he wasn't actually doing it in the open market. He was doing it with what are known as uh, fixed return swaps and other kinds of uh, basically over-the-counter side bets on the price of the stock as opposed to buying up the stock itself. So then there was no requirement to file the 13Fs and disclose it. So then literally, he goes down the street and he says to the next bank, hey, I'd like to make this trade. I'd like you to loan me $16 billion. They do it. They don't know the other bank made that loan because there's no public disclosure. So that's the actual issue. And the issue, it isn't even that people are taking the risk. The issue is that people are taking the risk. The people who are backing that risk don't know the full nature and scope of the risk and can't know very easily the nature of that risk. 
And then they then do things with their portfolios, not recognizing that they have way more risk over here than they thought they had, both in terms of magnitude and in terms of frequency, how often the risk will be expressed and to what degree. And then you have the systemic effects that play out of that, the domino effects that happen out of that, where you're a hedge fund now and you have uh, decided to hold your money, you trade crypto, you hold your money at, at FTX, boom, 100% gone. Okay, well, there's another hedge fund that invested in your hedge fund or a family office that invested in your hedge fund. You didn't even do such a poor job. They vetted your strategy. I mean, your strategy worked, let's say, you had your proper risk management, but boom, the institution goes down. Now they have 100% loss on your position. Now they have to go liquidate a different position. That fund was not expecting to have their biggest investor, let's say, pull out suddenly, but they have to, to meet other losses. So then they have to sell a position for a loss and pay taxes on a different position, let's say, to cover that. And then you can see how this plays out, okay? You, you can understand how, and that's a very simple flight version. You can have a web of this that's, uh, you know, millions of nodes wide and that magnifies unto itself through time. And then it goes loops back to the first one and he's got new problems now. And, and then the one that made money, he goes out of business too because his investors have to pull out their gains, let's say. So he doesn't have any more money to trade, even though he did well and picked a good institution to store the money at. So all of these kind of problems play out. And then these risks play through adjacent markets. How big is FTX really? What's really going on here? I mean, we, I, I don't want to, uh, this show is running absolutely feature length here. It really is. It's, it's going to be our longest episode of this show ever. But you look at, you know, the fact Tom Brady and Giselle put 600, apparently putting some percentage of their $650 million fortune into maximizing their stake in the FTX cryptocurrency. You had Kevin O'Leary, Shaq, all kinds of celebrities backing this. Some of the largest venture capital firms in the world, like Sequoia, I mean, Sequoia should just go out of business. I mean, this is such a shameful, the fact that they backed this fat toad vegan with this operation and put their backing behind it, presumably with the understanding that they do some kind of due diligence investing in this company most recently at a $32 billion valuation, they should, they should close down in shame. Even though they only put 200 million in, they'll probably be fine. They should shut down. Because whatever they do, whatever their process is, there's clearly something wrong with it. They now, by the way, have publicly stated that they're writing their position down to zero. Anthony Scaramucci is a big backer of FTX, investor, booster, uh, basically, you know, hype man for this operation. You remember Anthony Scaramucci? He became a crypto wizard after leaving the White House, apparently, all over the world pushing this crypto stuff. Well, we have a, a report on this from the Wall Street Journal. I think the definitive sort of report as of yet, as far as what's happening here. And where did the problem start exactly? Like, what is the core issue here? Okay, I get it. They're not letting people take their money out. The value of the companies slashed. The value of their own token slashed. They apparently put up their own token as collateral in loan situations. Like, why would you be able to put up any cryptocurrency as any kind of collateral in any loan? Even Bitcoin is way too volatile to be used as collateral. Are you kidding me? This whole thing is so goddamn backwards. 
I mean, where's the sense of these people? God almighty. It's like, it's like Charlie Munger came out and called cryptocurrency rat poison at, at 98 years old, 96 years old, probably at the time he made those remarks. It's like, can't anyone else have some sense here? Not be a bunch of greedy, slimy Ponzi scheme pushers. My God, I have never foisted anything like this on the public and never would. Unbelievable. You know, the, the, the allegedly credible people, you know, the people that uh, are allowed on Twitter with the legacy blue check marks of which I had, you know, but was banned. People like people like Jason Calacanis, you know, these are real, astute, well-heeled investors, venture capitalists, you know, they would People like Chamath Palahapatiya, you know, he's he's a real credible Silicon Valley oracle. It's like, Jesus, man, who exactly is the media and society and the tech platforms anointing credibility to all of a sudden? People who invest in this kind of crap and put their seal of approval on this sort of garbage, that's who. When it's transparently a fraud. By the way, a lot of the same people who were investors and backers and raisers and Theranos. And remember, venture capitalists are not merely the victims in this because what they do is that they invest in it and then they try to get everyone else to invest in it in order to boost the value of the investment they just made, besides just giving it the capital to survive, to, to get it up to an even higher valuation in a process which, frankly, is in every way resemblant of a sort of a Ponzi scheme, but it's slightly more honest. It's slightly more transparent and it is only slightly less likely to end in disaster. So the wall street journal came out and basically in simple terms here, the claim right now, and this is, this information is changing by the minute, but the latest Intel that I can get my hands on suggests that FTX had 16 billion in customer assets. And, and they, they claim allegedly FTX US is a separate entity, and that's fine. You can still take your money out of there. I don't know, folks. If that's true, I wouldn't have my money in it. I wouldn't have my money in it in the first place, but I, God only knows, and that can change the next second. So $16 billion in customer assets, and apparently gave $10 billion to Alameda Research, who blew it all. Alameda Research is a hedge fund, a separate entity run by Sam Bankman-Fried, and so they gave customer funds, certainly without the explicit approval of those customers, possibly with the tacit approval. I'm not sure. It's, it's possible. Like with Celsius, everybody said, what happened to my deposit? Well, there was small print. It said, this isn't a deposit. If you send us money, it is a loan to us. We will do with it what we like. And there's a chance we won't repay you. That was Celsius. That was the operation. That some 25, what do they have? 25 billion in total worth that was evaporated. They're... Essentially, their CFO was a uh, a former porn star, 24-year-old uh, retired porn star. That was Celsius. $16 billion in customer assets. $10 billion then goes to his personal hedge fund. Probably he thought he could you know, 10x it and he was going to be off to the races or whatever delusional thoughts he had. And that they lost it all and then some over at Alameda Research. They have now taken down the website of Alameda Research. That fund, that is gone now. So, as I said, there, there remains huge questions about 
the systemic risk here. None of this is any of what it claimed to be. It turns out that the, the cryptocurrency market, who, whose main claim, whose main talking point is this decentralization they speak of. Well, guess what? It turns out it's way more centralized than any other market would ever be allowed to be centralized. I mean, frankly, let's just cut to the chase here. People talk about their cold storage and their personal wallet. Okay, whatever. If you want to use cryptocurrency, use it to transact in any way that is remotely convenient, frankly, remotely possible for anyone other than a computer science major, you have to use one of these clearinghouses, you know, exchanges, they call themselves, like Binance, like FTX, like Coinbase. And I think all of these things should trade at zero, by the way. You have to use one of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could stake your own wallet in this, but come on here. Really? You're going to do all that to, to buy a coffee? It's, it's insanity. Or anything? It's insanity. And, and here's the fundamental issue. It should never be the case that the exchange, the exchange is the same entity as the custodian. It doesn't work that way in the stock market. You don't put your money at the New York Stock Exchange. You put your money at, let's say, interactive brokers. Interactive brokers can place a trade with the New York Stock Exchange. Sometimes there are even three separate entities. In fact, it's a requirement that with an IRA account, for example, there's a third-party custodian even besides the brokerage firm. In the futures market, for instance, you have the exchange. Generally, then you have the uh, brokerage firm, but sometimes that breaks out into the uh, introducing broker and the executing broker. So you might have, uh, I'm just using you know examples here. You could have, let's say the exchange would be the intercontinental exchange. The introducing broker could be um, you know, you name an introducing broker. I guess it could be like um, Optimus Futures in Florida. An Israeli guy runs that company. And then the executing broker could be R.J. O'Brien. So you, now you have three separate parties. That's very common in the futures world, for instance. So that you have what? Well, they don't call it a ledger. It is a ledger, but it's not a decentralized public computer ledger. Why does it need to be that? And then guess what? They report transactions of a certain size to the CFTC each week. That's called a ledger, folks. A ledger doesn't have to be on a blockchain. A ledger used to mean a, a, a paper notebook, okay? That was your ledger. That's how you kept your books. You were a bookkeeper. You had a ledger. So everyone has a ledger. These days it's computerized, not on paper, so they can clear it and, and, and reconcile the records a little bit more quickly. And it keeps everyone honest and it keeps the market running. Works great. Rarely there are issues, time to time like anything else, but they're not fatal issues in the way that you see here. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. It's like the, the, the functional real world of the crypto market, not some claim of hypothetically you could do it this way with a cold wallet, blah, 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 blah. The real world of it, the actual way in which you have to do this to be functional is centralized to the degree that it not only creates risk, but it creates conflicts of interest. There's another reason it's separated in terms of exchange and brokerage firm because you don't want to be trading against your broker. You want your broker to be getting you the best price. Now, there's been recent questions on that as far as payment for order flow and the like, but 
that's what you would want. That's what you'd shoot for. Well, if the brokers only got one exchange and it's them, they're completely conflicted, completely conflicted. And if they are a broker in the sense that you'd have a broker in any other sense of the word, under modern laws and modern norms, they would owe to you a fiduciary responsibility or at least owe to certain rules that at least ostensibly represent your interest, as would be the case in the stock market, the bond market, the futures market, even the currency market, which is kind of fly by night, at least in these offshore operations. Not so here. It's like, well, they have equity investors in Silicon Valley that invested in their exchange. They owe a fiduciary duty to them to maximize profits on the exchange. You give them your money to hold and trade on that exchange. Do they owe a duty to you to not rip you off on the spread, on the on the price they quote you? Who who are they owing the duty to? It's a problem, you see. And it and it's and it never should have been that way. It never should have been allowed to happen. Should have been actioned by the CFTC, frankly, not even the SEC immediately, because it really is a commodities, currencies, derivatives issue. But frankly, under any test of whether these cryptocurrencies are securities, um, they are securities. I mean, the family resemblance test, et cetera, they are securities in most cases as defined by the Supreme Court in Reeves versus Ernst Young and a whole bevy of other case law. This morning, Tether announced that they have frozen approximately $47 million held by FTX in their stablecoin upon receiving an order from U.S. law enforcement. Uh, they didn't specify, but presumably the Department of Justice. They didn't say civil regulatory. They said law enforcement, presumably the DOJ, who is now moving very quickly on this, considering that it's in the news. And, you know, God forbid they uh, move a little more quickly than the news. After all, they're very busy rounding up grandmas who stumbled into the Capitol with uh, Trump hats on on January 6. That is their priority, not making sure that you don't have $100 billion frauds imploding all over the goddamn place and jacking up what is already a very tumultuous capital market and economy. So we'll keep you updated there. Uh, that's my rundown so far. Um, it is a, a really unbelievable, unbelievable bust. Jacob, what do you think about gold? I have been following Pete Schiff for years and he is very bullish on it. Well, that's because he sells gold. You know, if you're in the gold business, you're bullish on gold. It's like CNBC. Their, bro their, their people are, they're in the business of stocks, right? Their, their network's backed by, by stock brokerages primarily, kind of like Fox News is and CNN are backed by pharmaceutical companies. So they're bullish on the vaccine at CNN and, and CNBC is bullish on stocks. And Peter Schiff is in the gold business. He sells gold. He's a, he's a, he's a gold pusher. So he's bullish on gold. Of course he is. Although part of you says, well, if he's so damn bullish on gold, then why does he sell any of it? Why doesn't he just keep it for himself? Why does he tell everyone else? You know, but of course that is what it is. I would look, I'd have, if you have some appreciable amount of money, I probably have two, three, four percent in gold or something like that. Physical gold, by the way, physical gold that you keep, you know, safe to the best degree you can. That's how I do that. I mean, I'm not a gold pusher at all. I'm not a gold bug. So what am I bullish on? I'm bullish on the idea that we're going to get this deleveraging taken care of here in the next six to 18 months or so. Six is probably pretty optimistic, but we, we've got to get this froth out of the economy 
and I'm going to be ready. And when that happens, folks, it's time to go in and buy tremendous assets. There are some tremendous assets here. I mean, there are some great homes. There's some great looking new homes that have been built. I'd like to buy some of them, but not at any price. You know, not not at not at $1.5 million for a three-bedroom, two-bath home. No. But there's a price at which I think it makes great sense to buy them. And then they will go up. And given the growth of the country and communities and inflation, they will be worth some higher price. So that's what I'm bullish on. I mean, it's, it's, it's a market that's very difficult right now. There's no question about that. It's very perilous. And if you play, if you play around in this market, like, you know, if you're a passive investor and every month you buy stocks and your time horizon is 20 years, you keep doing that. You never stop doing that because as it turns out, if you missed, you know, the best six days of any market in a year, you've missed like half the gains or something. So it's just, it, you can't time it day to day. You, you, most of us are too busy, too consumed otherwise to try to be active traders. Um, so you keep doing that. But if you decide you're going to go in and start you know, trying to play hedge fund manager with your own money or other people's money or whatever the case might be in this market, it is a dangerous market. It's a minefield. And you may make it big, but the statistical chance is that most people will not. Uh, so that's that's the deal there. Tether, of course, it's like, wait, I thought the whole point of this crypto stuff is the government can't take it. Yeah, okay. They can. They can take it very quickly, as we see once again and has been seen with many cryptocurrencies. We've covered that on the show. Bitcoin, you name it. Um, they seize it all the time. Government has figured out ways to seize it because they have compromised the tumblers. That's how that works. Those tumblers that the money launderers use, government has compromised people that run those on the dark web. And from time to time, the people turn over money to keep running an operation offshore. So anyway, talk about that. Uh, I got to move here. But just lastly, before we wrap up the show, I had to bring this to you just quickly here. Uh, I, I look forward to the day when we don't have to talk about any vax stuff because it's just like, look, this whole world, this whole population of people, they didn't get the vaccine, okay? And they're obsessed about it and they post about it all day long. They never stop talking about it. They didn't get it. Their family didn't get it. Fine. But it's consumed their lives maybe even more than some person who got myocarditis from it because they're so damn obsessed with it and posting about it and reading about it and talking about it all day long. And fine. I mean, they can do whatever they like, but it's just, I, I wouldn't want to be in that position. So myopically focused on something that you didn't get or do. Um, so, and, and nobody's trying to force you to do at least anymore in any large degree or number. Uh, it's one thing when they're forcing you, but okay. So we go here now and, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, there will have to be recriminations as far as the people that pushed the pandemic and the people that caused the economic damage and so much else. I mean, I don't want to be misplaced here as far as my perspective on it. It's just not something that, you know, we have other stories to talk about. We have other things to spend time on as well. Uh, but the story here is, you know, we've been told it was like, people said, what about myocarditis, right? People, young men in particular, but others as well, uh, young men were the biggest group seemed to be getting myocarditis after getting the vaccine, which is heart inflammation. Some of it persistent, some of it will never go away, permanent heart damage, sometimes death uh, from the COVID-19 vaccines. And what we were told by the medical establishment, the scientists, the doctors, the experts, the bureaucrats within government, the media, is that, well, no, no, no. You are, they would say, far more likely to get myocarditis if you get COVID yourself, which is going to happen to you if you don't get this vaccine. So if you're afraid of myocarditis, you have to get the vaccine. Well, that's what we were told. Well, now we have this large study that came out. Uh, this is in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, 500,000 uh, participants. It's really a, a, it's a, 
it is a uh, survey, really. I mean, it's a it's it is a um, you know a retrospective survey, but it's based on data, paperwork, etc. It's not calling people on the phone or something and asking. Well, in this survey, they found that there is in fact no statistical link between COVID nineteen itself and myocarditis. Once again, it was just a total lie. It was a complete and utter deception in order to sell vaccines, in order to get these things moving, in order to move their inventory, in order to get people to get these shots in their arms, which they were able to then bill the government $20 and $30 a piece for. That's what it comes down to. Uh, these uh, people in the medical establishment, the doctors, I mean, mainly the vaccine companies, Pfizer, Moderna, but but others I mean, that were part of this infrastructure, that were part of this ecosystem. They were, in the case of Pfizer, Moderna, they were given a license to print money and they were given a license to lie. Yes, they were. They were given a license to print money and a license to lie. You have a problem with their lies, try to sue them. You can't. In most respects, they're totally immune. The reason they're pushing it on kids now is because the whole uh, vaccine immunity, you know, the idea that they're immune from litigation because it's a vaccine. Well, the, the trouble with that is it does not apply unless, at least permanently, it only applies for a short period of time unless they get it approved for all age groups. That's part of the issue. So the, there are certain vaccines that are meant exclusively for old people. Um, for certain types of shingles, for example, or certain types of pneumonia that they give it to seniors, primarily like Prevnar 13 and things. And these are not immune uh, from litigation the way that, say, a COVID vaccine would be or a flu shot would be. And the reason they're not in the law. Now, the reason the law is this way is another question. But the reason that is, is because they're not approved for all age groups. That's why they had to get it approved for the five year olds, even though the market has expressed no interest in giving this shot to five year olds. There's been no uptake. Very few people get this for the five-year-old, but the reason they had to get this approved, and then it was like five-year-olds, remember it was 12, and then it was five, and then it was six months and under, newborn, day of birth. And the reason is, is because to maintain their, what essentially amounts to blanket immunity from lawsuits from those who claim they were injured, and claim is the proper word, at least in terms of litigation. In civil litigation, they are a claimant. Those who claim that they were injured uh are basically uh, prevented from a normal course of legal action. They are, in some cases, sent over to a vaccine court, which is basically a, an internal arbitration uh, board. In some cases, can't sue at all. Uh, there's no standing based on the way the law is written statutorily. Well, the, that, In order for that to be maintained, they have to get it approved for all age groups. Okay? Simply put. Even if, for some people, like young men, it appears now that the only benefit you would get from a vaccine, well, not a benefit, but the only discernible difference that you have after getting a vaccine as a young man, it appears based on the data, is that you are now more likely to get myocarditis. Otherwise, just the same. You could get COVID. COVID will be just as bad. You can spread COVID. You spread it just as much. The only difference between you and the unvaccinated 20-year-old male is you're now more likely to get myocarditis. Based on this data, based on what we see here, and by the way, it does seem like myocarditis. I mean, the, the other vac the other side effects are like way more rare. But the heart inflammation thing, especially in young men, but in other groups as well, that's the one that is so statistically significant, so prevalent in anecdotal reports that they are they are not able to memory hole it or deny it in the way that they have been able to deny many of the other 
claimed side effects. And so, well, there's the news. Uh, so no link between myocarditis and COVID itself. It was just a big lie. It was pushed down to the doctors. It was distributed massively. And I'm sure, of course, that we will see uh, that lie refuted by the mainstream media tonight. Won't we? No, of course not. Not going to hear that anywhere in the mainstream media. Probably not even on Fox. Maybe Tucker will give it a mention, but probably not even on Fox. You don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. And in the case of cable news, and in the case of much of the news business, network news, cable news, print media, the pharmaceuticals are the hand that feeds them. They are the major advertiser. Not the case here, though, folks. I am supported by you, the viewers and the listeners, those who get value from this show. They send value back. You really are, are the producers of the show. That's how it works. You're the executive producers and the associate executive producers. You, you make the show happen. Uh, and you do that by sending your, in some cases, time, talent, and in some cases, your treasure, uh, sending money into the show financially. You can do that on Cash App, Real Jacob Wool. Send a little bit this way uh, for this, uh, what I've spent, geez, probably 12 hours writing the show, two hours doing it here. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure. I'm happy I could. You can go to Cash App, Real Jacob Wool. You can go to jacobwold.org slash podcast and do a recurring donation through the Gumroad platform there. Uh, or one time, you know, just sign up and then you can cancel it anytime if you if you don't want to. Uh, but you can support financially. Send in your questions for next week's show. If you have a longer form question you don't want to put in the chat publicly with or without a donation, you can send it in to jacobwold.org slash contact, jacobwold.org slash contact. Again, cash app, real jacobwold or jacobwell.org slash podcast to support financially. It's been great to have you for this feature length episode. And uh, I will see you Monday. I'm sure we'll have a lot of news to talk about then. Hopefully not this much. This was a, my voice is going to be shot after this one. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure and I've been so glad to have you. Have a wonderful weekend. And I'll see you Monday right here live at 2 p.m. and in podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Thanks for watching and I'll see you on Monday.